Friends and enemies, it's episode 96 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And we got a big episode for you guys this week. We are we are joined by, by two of the best thinkers around. So we've got returning champion and academic fellow at Columbia Law School, Salome Villune, and uh, the director of AI Now, Meredith Whitaker. So I'm 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 very excited. Uh, personally to have Salome and Meredith on um, because I had the the good luck and good fortune of writing a piece with them recently which we will be which we will discuss in this episode alongside so much more um, in nature around uh, why data needs to be a public good but also uh, just very excited because you know both Meredith and Salome have had a massive impact on how um, how we think about issues around data, around issues of uh, artificial intelligence, and the, the, the political economy, the law, all of that stuff around these technologies. Um, just, just two people doing uh, amazing work. So thank you for, for coming on to talk with us. It's a delight to be here. Yeah, thanks. It's such a pleasure to be back here. It's, it is, yes, it is a massive delight. So where, where to begin? Where to begin? So I, I think the, the excuse for our conversation, right? The excuse for the episode, um, for, for a way of us all to, to hang out um, while making content around it, <laughs> giving a purpose to hanging out, um, is, is the, the, the work we've been doing together um, around these issues on like the kind of current political economy of data, right? And, and in particular, like, you know, building on the work that you, Salome, have been doing around thinking about democratic data governance, right? How do we understand data in, re- in relational terms, not just these like discrete little bits of information, but really about a, like networks of meaning and relation and, and, and the politics that comes along with that? And how do we govern data in that way? And then also thinking about your work, Meredith, on on artificial intelligence, but in particular, um, the questions of like, who owns AI? Who owns the kind of like data pipelines and the resources and controls access to this technology? So I think that, that, that those, are, those are topics we're gonna really get into um, in this episode. And I think we tried to crystallize around them in that like short comment we wrote for, for Nature where we're like, this is maybe one of the most important things uh, like important issues facing the uh, academic research, um, you know, tech and society is like these questions around like the the data pipeline. Meredith, from your position at AI Now, um, and and maybe for the audience's sake, could you give a little bit of a background about um, where you were before AI Now and what you're doing at AI Now? 
Yes. Um, I mean, that's a big question. And I could like, I'm old now, so I can start <laughs> many years ago. But before AI Now, I was at Google. I spent my entire youth at Google um, kind of trying to figure out what was so special about tech and like why it seemed to permit this sort of unmitigated hubris among its pr practitioners, like why we got free food. There was just a lot of things that weren't legible to me as someone who came in, you know, because they found me on Monster and they hired me and I didn't, you know, I didn't particularly like tech or gadgets. So I worked my way through there and I did a lot of work on um, kind of a, a big kind of core of my career was building large scale measurement infrastructures to effectively construct data on internet performance. This was a really hot topic back then because everyone wanted to figure out like, how do we, how do we adjudicate whether the net is neutral or not? And to do that, you know, if you're, especially if you're interested party, you need to own the benchmark, right? You need to figure out like, okay, this is the definition of neutrality, you know, against which we measure all sorts of other things. So I was like in the grimy business of trying to produce data that we could affirm was like meaningful about how the internet performed, right? And for like network folks, this is like TCP, RTT, right? Are we using good put or throughput? Like, are we using web 100 or this new like TCP info kernel? They're like really, really gritty questions that get like discussed in like peering boffs at networking conferences, but they were sort of ricocheting up to the FCC and to other sort of like big scale, like, you know, extremely high stakes policy debates. So I had this like kind of blood level sensibility about the like duct tape nature of data and the like, you know, like irreducible politics of trying to construct something that like is meaningful enough that you can affirm it represents your world, even if you're at the sort of lowest levels of the stack, as they call it, like, you know, dealing with something that you would think was sort of like so easily numerizable. And that gave me like a whole, you know, I was already suspicious about AI. It has a weird name, but I was also suspicious about machine learning. There was just this like wave of like hype that swept everything. Like Google went from a social mobile first company to like a machine learning first company. Like it was very clear where the money was and where the interest was. And like when I realized they were just taking random data that was much less easily valorized. And that made me very sensitive to the fact that most, you know, all data is subjective. All of it is janky and pieced together. It's all like a rough proxy. And then machine learning came along and took over everything. And there are reasons it took over everything, um, you know, that include its ability to propel tech companies into all sorts of new markets based on the generalizable power of these technologies. And I was just really worried that, um, machine learning, which was then rebranded as AI, was using like even less robust data sets, even like more randomly constructed proxies for our world to create these models that they, they were then kind of affirming had magical properties to be able to divine or predict or, you know, otherwise determine, uh, you know, make determinations that were, you know, better than human or whatever the claims were back then. So that was like, that was like the itch that I got that, you know, kind of led me into asking a bunch of questions and trying to figure out like, what was, you know, what was AI after all. And then I ended up co-founding AI now at NYU for a number of reasons. The most, um, I think, you know, like the most above board was that it was, you know, there was clearly we needed to be asking better, different questions and having a more public conversation about what this technology was, because what we knew about it was more or less written by, you know, marketing and wired contributors. But there wasn't, 
you know, we weren't actually asking, you know, any of these detailed questions. Um, and AI now is sort of an attempt to ask those. Um, it was also a way to like work with folks outside of Google. And there is a like extraordinarily porous osmotic layer between AI companies and academia. So making that transition was like pretty easy, right? Like no one gets treated better than a tech worker by a university. Um, and there's a lot of money in that relationship. So it was not too hard to spin up a center, um, given that like universities are like, have their ear out for that type of connection. And I was that type of connection. So there's a lot more there. And I like believe in the work that AI now is doing, but I also want to highlight like what is going on there at a broader scale between, you know, tech and academia. Yeah. I think that, I think that's really interesting. And that, that point that like, no one is treated better than a tech worker at a university is um, a very interesting and, and accurate point as well, which I think is something, I mean, I know is something we'll get much deeper into, which is that like those deep partnerships and connections between academic research and and tech companies, right? Like, well, partnership is maybe putting it a bit too um, equal footing, right? Like, like I, I think that increasingly it's not a partnership so much as it is like a uh, an outsourcing, right? Like, you know, a lot of like tech companies are outsourcing their research, whether it's research on the technical side of stuff, right? Like the scientific and engineering research and development side, or like out, outsourcing the research on like the social and ethical um, aspects of the technology, right? But on either hand, like it does seem like, just to back up a little bit, I remember it was huge news when Uber ba like bought like the Carnegie Mellon robotics uh, department, right? They just like wholesale just bought the whole robotics department. And it was massive news when they did that. But I think it was only massive news because like Uber, they did it in such a like flamboyant way where it was just <laughs> like, a, like a fire sale, like they're just going to cost Costco and just buying in bulk, right? But like, that's not unusual in the sense that like tech companies do this constantly, whether it's direct poaching of, of, of academics or placing their people in universities or just working so closely with them that there's like no, no real boundary between them. I mean, and one of like, Uber got called out so hard for that. There was sort of a brain drain discourse around that, that they started adopting a practice called dual affiliation, which is where they would like, you know, wine and dine, you know, a, a machine learning professor or somebody in a CS department, you know, and then basically they would hire them as a tech worker with like a massive salary, access to all the compute and data, sort of access to the inside, but they would be allowed to keep their university affiliation. So you've just, you know, you've just done a lot of things with that, but you look at any elite computer science department and a large handful of anyone who works on AI who has tenure or prestigious position will be dual affiliated. And it, there's no standard practice for announcing that. There are people who publish under in, uh, university imprimaturs without announcing those affiliations. It's just sort of a, it's understood as kind of the way things get done in AI research and universities and tech companies don't really have a, you know, a process for disclosure. Has that process been around from the beginning or has it just emerged only really in response to criticisms from the public or from activists or from other academics? I mean, 
I remember when I started in New York at Google in like 2008, I shared an office with Brian Kernahan, who was, he authored C, he was a co-author of Kernahan and Ritchie of the C programming language, but he also was at Princeton. So there was like a way to bring people in, but it, it certainly accelerated, right? And it's still something I only know because I was on the inside and it was like common practice. It's not something that I see sort of discussed or like I did, you know, I would love, I would love a, um, more rigorous research on like, where did that inflection point happen? But, you know, it's hard to get the data again. And it was, you know, very much in relation to AI, because AI was like a backwater discipline. And then suddenly, you know, 2012 happened, and they realized there was a recognition of the commercial potential. And so it was just bringing the handful of people who still did it in there out of their like dusty, you know, offices, and making them into rock stars, but there weren't really enough of those. And the timeline hasn't been, you know, long enough to produce kind of the next crop of eager aspirants. There's an interesting analogy here between this, like, you know, because lots of academics do consulting work, right? Like, and it's very normal in a lot of different disciplines, right? Like, I'm thinking about where you're situated in law, Salome, of like, like, you know, law professors are constantly doing like, you know, consulting work or work on the side that's like outside of their academic duties, but related to their expertise and stuff. But I do want, but there is also at least like, um, you know, this has been going on long enough that I think there's a, a pretty established uh, you know, kind of formalities and standards and protocols around like conflicts of interest and, you know, keeping that separated and then making it very transparent. But I do wonder, like, you know, I can easily imagine a lot of the the like IT professors, like the computer science professors, people working on these issues who are like, Oh no, like the, like yes, I get money and like resources from Google or Facebook or whoever to do this work, but it doesn't influence my work. I'm doing the same exact work that I would be doing whether I got their money or not. It's data. It's neutral, right? I'm just I'm just building technology and it doesn't matter who's giving me the money whether it's the National Science Foundation or Google or the university to who it doesn't matter who's giving me that money to build that technology. Because it's, it's just technology, right? So I, I wonder, I'm going to throw it over to you, Salome. Like, how do you think these, like, your know, relationships and conflicts of interest, do you see a difference in law and, and, and technology in that? Like, yeah, what are your things? Yeah. What are your thoughts? No, yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because actually, I just remember the process of go- coming, being sort of introduced to computer science and computer science adjacent, like tech criticism, academic fields, um, through my interdisciplinary work and my comparative work. And just being like, this is weird. Like, <laughs> why are there so many, why are people at companies treated the same as academics at academic institutions? Why are people from companies like reviewing scholarship to get into your publication venues and like also funding the publication venues? Like I, it was just strange coming from a different discipline because it seems to be sort of, you know, up and down the stack of knowledge production in this field in a way that even in law, you know, I wouldn't hold out law as this sort of like bastion of incorruptibility, but like (laughs) even in law, it seemed very, um, 
odd or noteworthy to me. You know, like how research is produced, what counts as good scholarship, who's reviewing that scholarship, who's funding that scholarship. None of that looks like this in my own field, which is legal academia. I mean, plenty of legal scholars used to practice at law firms. We are um, training lawyers, many of which go on to practice at law firms. Uh, A lot of the indicators of prestige in our field has to do with private practice. So we share those features with computer science. Um, But, you know, even law (laughs) doesn't really have quite that same flavor. You wouldn't have, um, you know, a a hallmark of a top law faculty wouldn't be that all of them are also working as partners at top private law firms. In fact, if anything, the hallmark of top law faculty is that they are working on kind of the other side, quote unquote, um, you know, doing public defense, um, working um, in in clinics, sort of trying to um, funnel students and expertise to the state or to, um, you know, private litigants um, often going up against the moneyed interests that make up the vast majority of clients at at private law firms. So it was actually sort of like a notable dissonance for me as I started engaging um, with this field, how sort of unusual it was. Um, And, and, you know, sort of something that Meredith said earlier, this is not my academic experience, but just like the experience of growing up as the um, child of a family physician in the 90s and the 2000s. Remembering that like weird moment where the pharma industry, everyone all of a sudden realized how insane it was that they were pouring so much money into whining and dining physicians. Um, you know, we, we sort of had a moment where we realized like, well, hold on, like all, pouring this much money from this industry in this sort of like gatekeeper industry is clearly questionable and clearly um, is distortive and is sort of leading to us having skewed interests from like what, you know, the role that these gatekeepers play in our, in, in our, in our healthcare system. And I almost wonder if we're at a little, it's maybe premature to say that we're at a similar inflection point um, with computer science and, and the, the money of the technology industry. But, you know, I think, for me, that's sort of the other moment of resonance that I have is sort of like, of course, the pharmaceutical industry flying doctors to all expense paid vacations in Hawaii uh, has a distortive effect on like the you know prescription practices of doctors. Um, you know, we don't have to sort of make that first case anymore. And I think we're maybe starting to to get to that point with, with the technology industry, though. You know, I don't I wouldn't say that we're quite there yet. I mean. I would say that's a really good analogy and one of one of the places where I think it's different but like worthy of equal alarm is this sort of the fact again not much spoken of that to do the research to do kind of cutting edge machine learning which is sort of defined for a number of reasons as data intensive and compute intensive requires access to industry resources so the, the foundation, you know, you can't do mm-hmm. it without yeah. using Amazon Compute or Google Compute or Azure or whatever. You also can't do it without data that, you know, you can scrape the same data set everyone else is using. But isn't it better if your professor gets to go into Microsoft Research and, like, use a, a little bit of that Microsoft data, pre-train the model, you know, and then you put your name on it and you get a NeurIPS paper. I think there is, like, a way in which there's an infrastructural capture that is really difficult to sort of analogize, but is, you know, is like shaping the field in a number of ways vis-a-vis the questions you answer, you know, how those, you know, rewards, you know, research rewards are sort of 
you know, doled out, whether it be tenure or best paper, you know, a paper acceptance. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. you know, I don't know. I think that what's happening at Stanford with the sort of foundation models rebranding thing is kind of telling about how those relations, those like kind of push and pull relationships have kind of like, you know, shaped what we define as AI in the image of concentrated industry resources. Yeah. I mean, you said it's difficult to analogize, but, you know, analogizing is the, is the uh, bread and butter of legal, <laughs> legal work and legal scholarship. So, I mean, for me, it's like as if access to the court and court opinions was completely housed inside of private entities. Like, oh, you want to do cutting edge research on, you know, how the Supreme Court comes up with its opinions or how it develops case law, like you need to go work at this company that how in which the our court system is housed. (laughs) You know, it's like private access to like the basic stuff that we need to um, analyze and like sort of develop thoughts on as as sort of the bread and butter of our scholarship. Yeah. Like when I realized Westlaw cost money. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Though Pacer is technically free. <laughs> I think the 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 infrastructure the infrastructural uh, point is really important as well um, in in the sense that yes I mean that's that's exactly right and I think that is the justification that is often given right is that like well I can't real I can't do good research unless I go hat in hand to the gatekeepers who have who own all of the good data or all of the processing power that I need, you know, that I need my, my like um, timeshare on or whatever um, and, and ask them like, Hey, like, can I, can I get access to this? Right? Like, you know, that's what makes them a gatekeeper is that they control access to this thing that they've enclosed ownership over. Um, And, and so, you know, we, we, we talk about this as, you know, in, in terms of like, like in our nature article, like trying, like setting up the problem, right? Like, like this is like really like trying to set up this problematic political economy that puts, uh, you know, social scientists and computer scientists both in a really difficult position, right? Because, you know, access to this data, um, access to this, this, uh, com- computational infrastructure on one hand like it, it it comes with conditions right like it doesn't come for free um, it, it comes in the it, with conditions that are you know at, at best uh, you know you feel this kind of obligation to or to, to do research using those resources that aren't going to necessarily, put that relationship in dire straits, right? Like, like, you know, so it's this chilling effect, right? It's this chilling effect of like, um, you know, some studies just won't be done, right? Because, uh, you know, maybe Google won't like it if I do that research and then they're going to cut off my access to this data that's really necessary for my studies. And then that's going to cause me to not be able to publish and then I won't get promotion and then I'll lose my job and it's a very precarious labor market and like, you know, on and on and on, right? Um, and I think in at worst, that access comes with quite explicit conditions and oversight and overview of the research at hand. 
Um, and, and but you know, I, I want to make a second point here, and then I'll throw it over to you guys. It's not only about the access, right? But it is also about this sense that like the data is not neutral, right? Like the data it ha- bears the mark of its original purpose and its original uh, origins as well, right? So like when you go train a model on some data that Microsoft is giving you access to, I mean, one, you're not getting access to all the data, right? You're getting access to a a, a very curated selection of stuff that they are happy to allow you to have, but you're also not getting access to a lot of other data, right? And two, you're not getting, you're not getting the documentation that comes with that data, where you understand how it was collected, why it was collected, how it was managed and stored, right? What kinds of values and biases might be wrapped up in that data? What was its original purpose, right? Is your model just like a secondary or tertiary use for that data um, that was created to do something entirely different, um, which therefore, you know, could in ways big and small influence the findings you get from that data, right? Like, Like it becomes such a bigger and bigger question the more you start asking uh, and investigating the like data pipeline and you know I'm, I'm, I'll give all credit um, to both of you but particularly Meredith for like really making me think more deeply and complexly about these issues of data construction um, and the data pipeline like you know these were obviously things that like you know, are important for understanding the politics of data. But it wasn't something I was thinking about in such a deep way until our collaboration on the, on this article. I know it's something that you, Meredith, have thought a lot about, continue to think about and write about, is this issue of data construction, which I think is really necessary for us to start wrapping our head around um, in, in terms of, yeah, understanding that not all data is like uh, fungible, right? Not all data is the same and it's, def- and it's certainly not neutral, even though I think it's often talked about in this like very aggregate way of it's, it's data, right? It's just data, you know, all data is all data, but that's, that's definitely not the case. Yeah. I mean, I think the question to just flip it a little bit is like, how do we want to know ourselves and our communities and our world, right? And is data that was created to answer questions that animate tech company incentives capable of telling us about our world, capable of sort of informing us about ourselves? And that I I think there is like a pretty fundamental question that doesn't have a clear answer necessarily, but like, it's certainly not the way I want to know my close community, right? Like if we're all, you know, I could just get a bunch of proxies from your phone that, you know, I've determined mean X. It means, you know, your cell phone pinging some tower somewhere means you're in a location, right? And I kind of make that determination, right? It's it's probably true most of the time, but it may not be true, et cetera. And I think there are, you know, again, sort of informed by my like constantly duct taping a data construction machine in the like form of measurement lab and the, um, you know, network measurement work that I did there. Like I just, you know, I think there is actually sort of a limited capability for data to mean. And I think the bigger you scale sort of 
data's meaning space. I don't know if this analogy works exactly, but like the more you are claimed to know about sort of, you know, thousands and then millions and then billions of people, the less you can trust that kind of knowledge. Um, so I think, you know, it's a, it's a, there's a two step that is hard to contain in any op-ed, which is like, yes, of fucking course we should have the data, right? It is ridiculous that we are groveling to Facebook for crumbs to like know the democracy warping nature of their ad serving, you know, micro targeting, whatever, you know, whatever is happening there. Right. And at the same time, we can't trust that data to tell us what we need to know about sort of how to build a better democracy or about our habits or about our preferences, right? So how, you know, how do you hold that tension um, and, you know, then demand ways of constructing knowledge about ourselves that we decide on the, the big we in question? <laughs> yeah, I guess I'll just sort of come at Jathan's dual question and Meredith's sort of dual answer by similarly kind of talking about how I see the two is very interconnected, but from sort of a legal theory side, which is to say like, you know, in, in law, you know, the questions aren't just what did happen already, you know, are there explicit examples of chilling effects we can point to, which yes, there are, are there implicit chilling effects that we can observe from the behavior of researchers? Uh, yes, there are. But the interesting question, I think for me as a legal scholar is who retains discretion? Where do we vest the right or the privilege over that choice? And Right now, the right and the privilege of retaining discretion over that choice, um, that gatekeeper role, that infrastructural role, resides with the companies that are sitting on this large resource of data. And, and you know, the interesting questions there are, is this the party, um, the, the party that we've vested with that discretion, is that the appropriate party? And, you know... Spoiler alert, I think that it, they are not the appropriate party, but in, in making that determination, we run smack into the, the issues Meredith is raising about the construction of, of our mutual self-knowledge, the construction of the data pipelines being that sort of construction of our mutual self-knowledge. And in order to say with some <laughs> force, like, no, the party that we're just vesting with this discretion currently is not appropriate, we have to point to the fact that they're not just creating widgets. They're not just growing corn and trading corn commodities. They're engaged in the construction of mutual self-knowledge, how we come to know one another and act on that knowledge. And, you know, we can make very compelling, profound arguments for the fact that we should all have a stake in how we construct ourselves in relation with one another. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I was going to ask, you know, internally when companies are confronted with the fact that the larger, um, their infrastructures get, the more data they have to construct, the more they have to scale up their operations, the less reliable in, you know, insights maybe, uh, as you're talking about the type of information that you can create about or uh, glean insight from about the community might not be useful. Is it useful for their purposes? Or is it that you're saying it's not useful for purposes, for democratic purposes, right? Or that it's harder to discern for democratic purposes? purposes or for like, you know, purposes that we as opposed to corporations or private entities might be interested in? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's sort of a gradation of answers to that question, depending on what we're talking about. But, you know, think about like Facebook sort of micro categories, right, that are constructed from, you know, web browsing material and, you know, whatever credit records they buy and, you know, information on, you know, what I clicked on Instagram or, you know, whatever it is. And then that has like, 
created a kind of prototype person, right? And that prototype may or may, you know, it's probably close, like, right, I, you know, sometimes buy trendy Insta brands or, you know, whatever it is. But it, you know, it is a construction that as long as it works to sort of like target shit, I will click or that they can affirm I clicked, you know, for their advertisers, it has answered their question, right? Like, this is the category this person belongs in, because it's correlative with, you know, this person clicking, right? It is, you know, like the objective function that we're putting in there is like, is this raising clicks or not? And if not, we're going to kind of you know, shuffle around these categories to see if we can get more clicks, right? Then we export that data and it's like, you know, this is the category Ed's in and this is the category Salome's in and, and Jathan, right? Like that tells us a lot about what Facebook thinks about us vis-a-vis our, you know, consumption or clicking patterns, right? But like, can we, you know, how much can we extrapolate from those models before we're sort of reifying this twisted ad tech vision into our, you know, real lives and kind of performing it as like ad tech agents somehow, right? And I think like there's a number of, you know, we could we could go across a number of different data categories and I just sort of like pounced on that one as as kind of an example of that tension. Like, I want to know what they think of me, right? I want to know how they're like trying to make me do shit and buy stuff. I don't want to own it. I don't want to internalize it. And I don't want to be beholden to those classifications in the way that I relate to, you know, the world and my people and what have you, right? Like I I want to always be able to contest anything that is sort of constructed by a tech company about me or about sort of the broader world. I don't know. Have have any of you ever seen um, the sort of picture of a homunculus of the human body to our nervous system? If you Google that image, you'll see that like to our nervous system, it's basically like how many nerves are in an, a given part of your body. And if you Google like the homunculus of the human body to our nervous system, you'll see that our backs are really tiny. Our faces are like enormous. Our hands and our feet are huge. And I think of that a lot as like, you know, Facebook's prototype mare is the homunculus of mare to Facebook. And it, you know, the components of you that are a consumer that can get nudged into clicking on like Instagram fashion are going to be big, you know, the same way that to our nervous system, our hands seem enormous and our back seems small. And I think a lot about that when I think about like that sort of two step again, you know, it's like, yes, I think that they have some homunculus of me and my body and like, you know, that sort of distillation of who I am that still is to some extent corresponds to me. But which aspects of myself are being distorted are very different when you think of me first and foremost as like a consumer that you're trying to get to buy like fancy millennial like cat products for me. <laughs> and and if you think about me as primarily sort of like a, a public citizen, yeah. the aspects of my body that are going to be exacerbated or distorted or emphasized are just different. So, you know, it is, yes, like this is my digital homunculus, but also what features are being distorted or emphasized are, of course, going to be different. Going along that lines and thinking about it in a different analogy, you know, what Meredith's uh, response brought up to me was like a like a funhouse mirror, right? Like we talk about data um, as this like mirror, uh, you know, that just reflects back on, on society uh, in some way, but it's not, right? It's always 
distorting and emphasizing and spotlighting certain aspects of whatever it's uh, it's sensing and it's collecting a, a data, you know, and creating data about, right? And so I, I think on one hand, we have to do away with this analogy of data as a mirror of, of reality, right? A, a kind of a, uh, just a, a way of channeling objective truth. That's not the case, right? It's, it's always a distortion of the thing that it is creating data about or the thing it is sensing. So then it becomes a question of in what ways is it distorted, right? And this is a, you know, I like this analogy of the, the nervous system and the homunculi, right? Like, are we wanting to then build products or build knowledge um, and therefore build, you know, the basis for action on data that is distorting us in ways that make us look like, uh, you know, Facebook's idea of the ideal subject, right? Or Google's idea of the ideal subject. I mean, I think the answer to that is no. Um, but, you know, th this is also something that is, it's not just about advertising, right? Like, I think that, I think that the approach that these advertising first companies have to data is also really one that they take over to all these other areas that they're moving into, right? So like with advertising, it's pretty low stakes, right? It, someone clicks or someone doesn't click. You know, for the company, it's it's a pretty low stakes uh, prospect. I mean, we can think about, you know, the Cambridge Analytica and stuff to see how the stakes can very rapidly rise or think about like, you know, like a uh, work I've done with Astra Taylor a while ago around like, you know, how like... Uh, Facebook advertising was being used for like predatory loans for colleges, um, lead generation that led uh, in a kind of direct way to the financial crash, right? Like, like these things can have stakes that rise very rapidly. But I'm also thinking about like, you know, these companies are moving into like the health sector, right? Like they're trying to they are working really hard to get to 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 gain control and gatekeep um, access to like health data, right? Like you know, making you know, Google made you know, we've talked about it on TMK a little like a like last month, I think. But you know, like Google made a deal with a with a giant private hospital chain in the U.S. Um, to gain access to all of its data, so it could then create like you know automated decision making models and AI and all this stuff to like you know guide uh, physicians you know care practices and inform their choices and optimize the uh, operations of hospitals and like Palantir you know was doing is doing the same thing with the NHS in the UK. Um, but you know the 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 thinking about data construction made me really realize like, you know, I was reading this report from the Data and Society Institute about fairness and precision medicine. Um, and it was only because of, uh, of, of working on this paper with both of you that I had data construction in mind and that this part really jumped out at me. But they were, uh, this report was talking about how, um, you know, a lot of the data that these companies are trying to build like these precision medicine tools and, and models off of are largely collected from uh, electronic health records, right? Uh, as this report says, the software is designed to build a record of care that can be translated into billing codes. And this sometimes diverges from the realities of clinical care. So in other words, 
by building these models for the future of medicine on electronic health records, they are building models on data that was constructed for billing purposes, not clinical purposes, right? Which I don't think that they either realize or care about that fact, right? Because for them, it's just data, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a, a hoard of data that they have access to. And by God, we'll just, we'll just do it, right? You make do with the data you have. These aspects or these issues around data construction are just surrounding us <laughs> in, in so many different ways. I mean, I think that is a great example also, because the second you said sort of fairness in precision medicine, I was like, how are we framing this as a technical problem, right? We are in a country, if we're speaking from the US, which I know not all of us are, but that does not have socialized medicine, right? We have a privatized medical system where you like, you better know to say, don't call an ambulance if you're hurt, because you might go bankrupt. And so, you know, what are we talking about in terms of like, you know, what would be remediation for healthcare to ensure that people truly had sort of a fair, you know, kind of fair access to better care, right? And that, like, I, I also think, you know, kind of the focus, you know, the amount of money and the amount of focus that is going into kind of, you know, automating things as a solution also makes it harder to argue for sort of the fundamental structural changes, which would obviously be needed to sort of collect better data that was fungible across, you know, massive hospital systems and insurance chains and, you know, et cetera, right? Like, I think not only, you know, we should also mention that those billing codes change frequently, right? Because insurance companies are constantly updating, you know, what is billed, what, <laughs> which, yeah. you know, gets them more money. And then, you know, which means that all of the like hospital admin staff constantly have to go to like retraining about the new billing code. So there's no way that data is sort of even fungible amongst itself, let alone sort of, capable of, you know, giving us some ground truth on, you know, how people could, you know, receive better care through an automated system, even if that premise were possible. And I think like, we just don't have a way to test that because we don't have halcyon, a halcyon world in which things work that way, that way, that way. I spent quite a few years working in the healthcare industry. And during that time, I noticed uh, anytime there was a, a huge change to the way um, Medicare coded, Things are add-ons and specifically in the realm of like a rehab, you know, like custom custom equipment rehab is what I worked in. Anytime they would change or update codes, it would seem like the companies I worked for would get rid of the most of the office staff and hire new office staff because it was easier to just train new people wow. on the new coding than it was to train the old staff on the old coding because you get to the point where you're using these like identification codes for diagnosis uh, like 30, 40, 50 times a day. So that was hard graining your brain. So there was no way to really wire that new code in and force your brain into like performing at the same rate you were before with a new code. It was just easier to let that person go and bring someone else in and train them on the new coding within like three months and having them up to, to the same place where the other person was. Cause it's, you're generally, if you're sitting there and you're inputting the same 15 codes, yeah, eight to 10 hours a day for three months. I mean, it's going to be like playing Tetris for eight to 10 hours a day. You're just going to see the blocks fall constantly. You know what that sounds to me like uh, a, an AI startup opportunity right there. You just automate away all that administrative human labor, and you know, then you then you just reprogram the AI. And <laughs> but honestly, like like I can imagine somebody hearing 
that that you know, you you saying that Jeremy and being like I have the solution to this right like I have the solution right you just feed the data into an AI model at the at the top of the show uh, Meredith you're talking about how like Google and these companies were you know they like they shift right like it was like you know it was Smack you know earlier right it was social mobile analytics cloud right it was like uh, and now it's about a <laughs> I, I forgot about. I, I even forgot about that until you talked about it. I was like, oh my God, yeah, like 10 years ago, people were talking about smack, right? It's all about smack, but now it's AI, right? And like, um, I, I, I think that AI is cast as a universal hammer for every nail, right? Like, you know, it's so easy to hear something like the story that Jeremy just told and being like, I have the solution for that. And it's artificial intelligence, right? You can make that response to essentially everything, right? And I think that is also one reason why these companies have become so ag both aggressive around moving into AI and capturing the infrastructure and gatekeeping the data and the resources and, and all that, while also hyper-defensive about their position on that. Not only defensive in this term of like building monopolies, but defensive in ways of like, like the whole AI ethics uh, discourse is I think really has to be understood as a hyper-defensive play by companies like Google to get out ahead of criticism and control the narrative of criticism. Um, because for them, and we can see this, you know, you talked about the, the quote-unquote foundation models, right? These large language models. We can see this with like uh, Google's you know, full court press recently around mum. <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's new, big, um, large language model that's going to be the basis of its, like, you know, all of its services. And, you know, they're talking about it as like the future of the, of the, of Google's business is these large language models. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess just talk to, talk to that a little bit. This idea of AI as the universal hammer for every nail. Yeah, I mean, I I think it is like pretty straightforward, right? You had ad techs, you know, like the ad tech companies kind of like won the race to commodify the internet after it was, you know, it was it was privatized, right? Or like the network, right? The NSF net, and then you had these, you know, the dot com boom and this sort of history, which I, you know, remember some of. Um, and so you had these like winners around the 2010s. At the same time that there was sort of advances in chip design, you had, you know, GPUs, which were used for gaming, but then that like, you know, oh, we can experiment with this around sort of, you know, training models with more and more and more parameters using very old techniques. Like we should be really clear, like AI, you know, the stuff we're doing, right? Like backpropagation, you know, convolutional neural nets with like back, that's like 1989, <laughs> right? Like the techniques are like fairly old, although there's been advances. Like what happened was that suddenly these, you know, that people who sort of had access to this infrastructure or, you know, the, the development of this infrastructure and the development, you know, particularly of like data collection regimes that were powering these like targeted advertising empires, you know, made it possible to kind of val like validate the, you know, the correlative capacity of these, you know, these old techniques, right? Like you train it on a shit ton of data 
um, using a large amount of very expensive compute and some new techniques, um, you know, on both data labeling and data um, and the like computational side. And suddenly they're like able to recognize cats, right? And I think what this did was it was sort of a, you know, a lot of folks in the industry woke up around like 2012 was like when there was this one algorithm called AlexNet that like was a proof of concept for the public, but there was sort of experimentation in different labs starting 2010. And they realized like, oh, you know, we can find correlatives between data and anything, right? Like we can train something to sort of like recognize something or kind of probabilistically, you know, determine is something kind of like something else, right? And that this is a recipe to extend our market reach in a number of different directions, right? I think it's meaningful that it was like generally referred to as machine learning. And then like the term AI was sort of adopted on top of that, right? Like it's a much more noble and kind of mis mystifying term than machine learning. And there was just a huge amount of hype where like the transhumanists were like suddenly getting a lot of funding. And there was this sort of, you know, story around like, well, this is, this is step one toward the super intelligence. Like, you know, a whole mythology was built pretty quickly around these like data intensive, compute intensive sort of like, you know, correlation systems um, that used to be called ML and then were AI. And, you know, on that mythology, these companies recognize they could like, you know, suddenly they can sell healthcare, give us your data, we'll build the healthcare, you know, AI, right, we'll train a model on this, and then, you know, test it on some poor patients, or, you know, whatever it is, we'll solve education, we'll solve, you know, x, y, and z, but it was kind of this golden key to open all these markets that were, you know, that a lot of these companies have been looking to enter for a second and not very successfully because like the joke is tech doesn't really work for most things. Um, but then AI became this sort of like, you know, the, at least a narrative that like propelled things in that direction. And of course this is happening, like, you know, the further erosion of the social wage and kind of like funding of, you know, municipal governments. And there's like a lot of folks who are willing to pick up on a promise like that if it means cost savings or if it means sort of, you know, further advancing their austerity goals if they're not going to be the ones who kind of get hurt by the determinations made by these systems. I think that was probably too long and like maybe a little bit too rushed, but I think that that is the arc that I saw play out. And I think is sort of still playing out with the like new retrenchment around, you know, so-called foundation models, which is a bullshit marketing term, but like large language models, which are this new kind of, you know, the mums model and the other ones that Google and, and some other companies are kind of betting their, um, you know, betting whatever their like quarterly earning goals are on. You know, we were joking on, on, well, half joking on Twitter recently as well, right? That like, you know, yes, there's a no in innovation, but you can't say no to innovation, right? Like, like the way that these like foundation models and like, you know, this narrative around AI and stuff uh, assumes that this will be the case, right? It assumes that the technologies will be the case. And it also assumes that this like political economy of gatekeeping will always be the case, right? That like, like these things are brought to us by the grace of the tech companies, right? Like we have to depend on the largesse of the tech companies um, to build these tools, to do research on them, to understand them, right? To have any kind of access to them. Like there's a lot of things that are assumed uh, into um, even the criticisms, right, around around these things. Like, you know, we've talked about the foundation models a little bit. And, you know, this is all kind of built on this new big, like, research center at Stanford, right, that is, like, you know, purporting to look 
you'll ask the critical questions, the big critical questions around the use of the, around this new paradigm in computation and, and, and technology built on these like large language AI models. Um, but as, you know, as, as, as you um, and as others have been, you know, like, you know, critically commenting on this is that like they baked into that, you know, is so many assumptions um, around what can and cannot happen, the kinds of questions that can and cannot be asked. Like, you know, I, I think about uh, like uh, Anna Lauren Hoffman's paper on um, on inclusion, right? Like, like critiquing this concept of inclusion um, in the kind of tech discourse, and near the end of that of her paper, which we've talked about on, on, on a TMK episode before, but near the end of that paper, right? She, she raises that question of no, right? And how the question of no is never on the table, right? It's never an option to just be like, no. And, and I think that that is also extremely telling as well. Um, one thing I'm, I'm curious yes, to hear about from y'all. Um, and I think I've also heard people, uh, when they when they've asked us questions about about this sort of uh, thing is you know with these foundation models with these other marketing tools how much of it is like a conscious effort to provide a narrative realizing that there's an opportunity here how much of it is just how like a response to how narrow the imagination or the or the horizons available to people for pursuing any sort of alternative or thinking they're pursuing an alternative inside of the standard, you know, institutions and political economy for tech that we have. And then how much of it is like people are stepping from like, believe that this is the best way, like our intent on seeing it and think that this is just like a logical step forward and it's, and it makes more sense and it's not as limited as some of the critics push because I'm curious like I feel like at the moment right now there have been a series of there's been some cycling between like legitimation narratives right there's the attempts in some areas to try to latch on to narratives about like great power competition and using these and how the need uh, to dominate geopolitically should quash any qualms about ethics and then others saying that we hear the concerns about ethics and we'll impose some minimal barriers but that to impose any more would stall progress and that and then what's the point of you know doing any of this if we're not going to progress and then others proposing things if it feels like that seem like they are real serious proposals or frameworks from their perspective but in reality are still playing into the same sort of limitations and and flaws and height and um and over and oversights as the other problems and maybe, maybe as a way of segueing as well, build, like building on what Ed just said, maybe we can start segueing towards a discussion around like what, what needs to happen, right? Like what are yeah. these steps towards kind of democratic governance? Yeah. No, I mean, my hesitation is just like, I'm definitely not by any means an expert in <laughs> recent events because I haven't been paying attention to recent events because I've been teaching for five hours every day <laughs> and just preparing to teach five hours yeah, every day. Yeah. So yeah. I've actually been blessedly, blessedly offline <laughs> just oh, <laughs> for oh. the past several days. One so, day. you know, I can't, I know some, you know, all, all it takes is teaching for five hours yeah. every day. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, I can sp speak to this sort of positioning of, not just innovation is inevitable, which 
Uh, I would maybe be somewhat in the minority position here that like, I actually am in favor of innovating. I just think the questions that require answering and that urgently require answering are vastly different from the ones um, that we are both kind of institutionally and technologically um, oriented towards answering right now. But, you know, I mean, so I can kind of intervene on this sort of positioning of um, narrowly construing what innovation is, narrowly construing the technological responses to those innovative goals as not just, of course, a historical, but empirically incorrect. You know, it's sort of law pedant 101 (laughs) to say there's no such thing as more or less state intervention in our innovation and in our innovation policy. There are only legal rules that use state power to allocate, you know, discretionary rights and authorities between and among private actors differently. So we always have industrial policy that set our terms of innovation. That just looks a lot more like private contract rights (laughs) between two people, or it looks much more like federal funding agencies allocating that money more directly. Like there are laws, there is state authority behind both of those regimes. One of those is a private property and contract regime that will be enforced by a state. And the other is, you know, more more direct kind of democratically sort of reviewed and allocated funding. Both of those are state interventions. Both of those are sort of state regimes backing our innovation and our industrial policy around innovation. Uh, So that's just sort of like law pedant 101. (laughs) That's just sort of like the move that any legal scholar will make. Um, But, you know, needs to be sort of consistently refuted because there's a lot of obfuscation that goes on in the narrative around innovation as more or less state intervention. Hmm. I, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, because yeah, I, I think that like, uh, there, uh, there's obviously this strong libertarian bend, but you know, in a lot of ways it's like a very like pseudo libertarian bend in Silicon Valley as well. Right. Where it's not about like less state intervention. What they really care about is more state intervention for their interest. Right. And to benefit their own agendas. Um, like, you know, it, it, it it's, we can see this in even just thinking about, you know, like the, 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 the God King of cyber libertarianism, Peter Till, right? Being like, how are you, how are you, uh, living this contradiction of espousing, you know, your cyber libertarianism while also, you know, like being on the board and, and co-founding and, uh, investing in companies like Palantir and Enduro that like live by the by the grace of the military industrial complex, right? Like that's state intervention, right? Like like you like or 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 like the hyper nationalistic rhetoric around like building America first technologies and things like that, right? Like so I I, I really like this distinction that you're making here, Salome, because I think it's exactly correct where it's it's a it's a false it's a false binary to put it on uh this like you know this spectrum of like more or less state intervention it's uh, it's a question of s- state intervention for whom and for what right like that is the that is the real question here yeah i'll just briefly put in my plug for um this, these are old moves in law i mean in the us legal con- uh sort of trajectory of legal reasoning here. This is Robert Hale. He's writing about 
robber barons in the industrial era. And he's pointing out, you know, this is back when it was considered unconstitutional. It was a violation of our constitutional right to um, freedom of contract to unionize. So unionizing was unconstitutional at the point that Robert Hale was writing in, in the 1910s and 12s. And he was saying, you know, the, the industrial robber, the industrialists, the robber barons would have you believe that, you know, constitutionalizing the right to unionize would be this impermissible use of state power. Well, that's insane because the state is allocating coercive power between the, you know, factory owner and the worker every time that it enforces property rights. The worker has to go work in order to get bread. He can't just take the bread. He can't just take his housing. That's the state allocating mutual coercive power between these two parties. And he basically, back in 1912, in the U.S. tradition, collapses this idea that it is impermissible state interference to grant us a constitutional power to unionize. He says that's just the state allocating that coercive power between these two parties differently. We enforce the industrialists' right to property, we enforce the workers' right to organize. <laughs> That's just us reallocating coercive power. We can do a similar legal move across all sorts of settings. We can say the same thing about innovation. innovation. What reallocation and redistribution of state intervention um, do do we <laughs> do we argue for in our nature piece, and do we think is necessary here? Right, because the exactly what you were just talking about here, of like you know, the enforcement of pro of the the property rights of capital is itself state intervention. Like it, you would be foolish to not understand it as such. I mean, you know, people like Hayek, you know, uh, these you know founders of neoliberalism. That was the real innovation of, of neoliberal thought was being like, no, it's not laissez-faire. No, markets are social constructions and they only live and die by the grace of, of the state providing a framework of support and enforcement for the market, right? So, so in many, like we live in the aftermath of a movement that was about reallocating state intervention towards the goals and interests of capital vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, the market. You know, so it's it's not to say like, oh, like the, the socialists are radical because they want the state to do stuff. It's like, no, we just want the state to do different things, which the neoliberals have already succeeded in making the state do. Right. So like what what then I, I'll, you know, I'll throw it over to um, to 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 you guys. But what then should the state be doing in terms of like moving data outside of the realm of private capital or a market commodity and towards the realm of um, being more of a public good, a collective resource? This is kind of the basis of all of my legal scholarship. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think that it just conceptually doesn't make sense um, to think about data as something that we allocate individual rights over, but most particularly not um, sort of pure private discretion over. I think that it just, by its nature, um, what makes uh, information about our society, I refer to it as social data, what makes social data socially valuable is its sociality. <laughs> and therefore, it requires um, sort of reflective political institutions that reflect this sort of feature of what makes it 
socially valuable and potentially socially exploitative. So that's like a long way of saying that I think that it already is a public good. I think it's simply a public good that we are not allocating public rights and privileges over. There are a number of different legal instruments at a various levels of um, authority um, that can create um, sort of collective governance over how we mutually create self-knowledge about one another. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think I am in the camp that says different kinds of information flows probably require different kinds of forms of collective governance. Um, so, you know, I'm not like a one size fits all response here, but I think as a basic matter, I'm, I'm interested in responses that bring our legal and political um, sort of enforceable picture of information production and information governance in line with what I think is already sort of socially and politically true about information and information production. Yeah. And I would, I would just say I have learned so much from Salome's work on this and would agree with that. Um, I, you know, I guess what I will add in here is, you know, I get, like we're supposed to be bringing this to the optimistic, but I'm not going to do that immediately. I mean, I think we are, you know, we're looking at climate crisis. <laughs> um, we're looking at, you know, yeah. a fair, you know, we're looking at the rise of authoritarianism and we now have, you know, every weekend there's a new fascist sort of gang on the streets, openly violent, right? Like this is not a game and it didn't go away when Biden got elected and we still have sort of, you know, a mounting set of interlocking crises. Like, why do I bring that up? Because I think the decentralized control over this information or over the kind of the hegemonic ability to claim that you have secret knowledge about people and, you know, et cetera, based on data is also like an extraordinarily powerful form of social control, right? Like the types of technologies that are being produced, you know, the decision-making systems, these sort of new physiognomic, you know, like automated mind reading systems, which are being, you know, like it you know, served to span the, expand the facial recognition market from something fairly narrow to something extremely promiscuous, right? So you're seeing these sort of, you know, deployed at the same time that we have these, these mounting set of crises. So I think there's also, you know, there needs to be some pretty significant attention to sort of who is wielding the ability to, you know, control this information and, you know, what the power asymmetries in the construction of data constitutively are, right? There is the, you know, the person measuring, the measurer who constructs the data, and then there are the data subjects, right? And like, in what cases are we comfortable with that relationship governing our, you know, kind of our knowledge, our decision-making systems? And in what cases do we need to sort of, you know, again, say no, right? Like going back to, to Anna Lauren Hoffman's article, like where are there places where it's just, you know, we actually need to deconstruct these, these infrastructures. And I think, you know, that's why the answer for me to so much has increasingly been like, it's clear that we need organizing, right? Yeah. Like it's clear these are real battles of power in which different sort of, you know, workers have a very particular place in the, you know, like, in the pantheon of folks able to disrupt capital, right? There's sort of, you know, also different social movements, there's different, but there needs to be a recognition that this is not, you know, we can have really good ideas, we can sort of have sort of proposals, but we actually have to have also a strategy to sort of fight for those and a recognition yeah. of the sort of asymmetric social control that is wielded through these, these technologies. So organizing is, I think, increasingly like a big part of how I think about at least the toolkit to achieve some of these social ends which is probably pretty obvious if you <laughs> looked at my Twitter. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, there, there's always there's always space for for more and stronger advocacy around organizing, right? Like, um, I mean, we we will uh, we've talked we've talked about doing you know a different episode that we'll do, Meredith, um, with you, really focusing on these efforts around um, organizing tech workers and and your experiences in that and what needs to be done. So, I mean, yes, uh, always always you know organize. Often organize early. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you take one lesson away, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and going going to this this question of state intervention as well, I think is really uh, important. And 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 the idea of infrastructure here, right? Like, you know, at the top of the show, we talked about the the, the problems that come with private control over data and computational infrastructure and the the way that creates these really toxic relationships between um, you know between companies and between universities um, between corporate interest and academic interest and you know so much of this is founded on um, these kinds of questions that that Salome raised around like where is state intervention directed at right and currently state intervention is not directed at doing things like um, creating public infrastructure around uh, you know the measurement computational and storage systems that are needed to um, you know create and maintain these like large data sets um, you know for doing research on uh, you know on AI on on anything and everything at the, at this point right like this is a massive problem right like this is it's a massive problem that um, you know in so many in, in in so many realms, infrastructure has just been handed over to private actors to to control, right? And it's this idea as well that you know, well, infrastructure is neutral, but you know, we all know that's not the case, right? Like infrastructure is created for certain purposes and very specific purposes, and it and it you know, and it allows um, and disallows. Uh, certain uses of that infrastructure. And, you know, this is something that we um, argue for, I think, very forcefully and honestly in a way that I was, like, shocked that, like, like the editors at Nature, like, allow, allowed us to, to make this argument, you know, in the pages of such an august publication to be like, uh, you know, no, th like, this is how we re-wrench uh, something like data out of the hands of private capital and put it back in the hands of the public um, as a collective resource and building this public infrastructure for it, taking control of that data, right? Um, expanding the governance of it, right? Like these are these are the, the the steps that we lay out for for how to do this differently. And you know, I, I think that there is a lot of criticism and well you know well needed criticism of the current way that things are done um, but I think that there needs to be a lot more forceful support for how to do it differently and and I, I think there's a lot of room for that and a lot of a lot of room for looking towards um, other other whether it be legal or institutional um, precedents and analogies um, for thinking about how can something like data be governed in a in a uh, what would appear to be a radically different way yeah so yeah sort of just reflecting on that as well as sort of Meredith's prayer comments too you know kind of calling back my earlier analogy of the humunculi you know 
the homunculus of subjects for private profit and the police state, those do largely require deconstruction and destruction in order to bring our collective representation in line with any vision of like sort of just collective self-knowledge. But I'd say, you know, at least for me, kind of my starting point as a theorist here is I'd say there's a difference between saying those sort of collective representations, those sort of collective homunculi shouldn't exist, that I shouldn't be some representation of collective forms of self-knowledge, and saying that that collective forms of representation shouldn't, should reflect just visions and goals. Um, and, and I think that's for me, at least like theoretically or conceptually, a starting point in drawing a distinction between having like the purely destructive deconstructive agenda and, uh, and having like a little bit more of a sort of productive um, agenda and sort of still being able to like very forcefully critique the homunculi uh, of our subjects for private profit and police states, but being able to base that critique on the idea that I, I am collectively formed through mutual self-knowledge with other people and you know, any, any form of <laughs> anything that replaces private profits or police states will also involve collective forms of self-representation. We just need to ask ourselves in, in service of what, you know, what is the nervous system? What aspects of ourselves do we want to emphasize in, <laughs> you know, replacing private market allocation with public allocation? That's going to require, you know, forms of self-knowledge, what aspects of our current forms of consumption do we need to represent in order to understand our CO2 emissions and try to minimize them? These are questions worth asking um, via forms of collective self-representation. Um, and, and so, you know, that that's kind of the, the, the positive vision that I hold on to. I love that, Salome. Um, and I would say those are, you know, then there's like a, a set of very generative, very exciting questions, right? Like how is you know, how is the collective defined outside of the corporation or possibly outside of the state, right? How is, you know, how is kind of collective knowledge constructed and used and what are the sort of negotiations around, around that, you know, around that use? And does it, you know, does it take the form of data, right? Does it take the form of a SQL database that we query or does it take other forms of sort of, you know, transmitted knowledge? And I think like, I like kind of, I like defending the right to go back that far and sort of rethink some of some of these infrastructures, right, which is not, you know, which kind of, you know, continues to protect the need for collective knowledge, but sort of moves away from, you know, the, again, the dominance of the sort of data paradigm that I think is, is appropriate for a lot of things, but would need to be rethinking, rethunken, rethought. <laughs> Um, in some pretty profound ways, if we're going to move away from centralized corporate infrastructure, yeah. it's 8.50 p.m. <laughs> in my time zone. Dear reader, apologies for that. Any, any last thoughts here, right? Like, I mean, this is obviously a really big topic and we've, on, we're, we've only broached the subject here, right? And uh, there, there is always so much more to talk about, um, always so much more discussion that needs to be had and work that needs to follow from it, right? But, but I think that uh, I, I, for, I, for one, am feeling 
cautiously optimistic, which is the best I can muster. Cautious optimism. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> maybe not maybe not just a active pessimism. Let's go that far. I'm not feeling actively pessimistic <laughs> about, <laughs> about about the prospects of thinking about data differently, but also understanding um, these relationships and these political economies of data that have become so entrenched, so normal, but I think are starting to be cracked open, right? I think are starting to be questioned. Um, and, and, a, and, and, and that space for that questioning in a way that is outside of the uh, the frame of, of, dis- of discourse and narrative created by these companies, like space for it, space for that questioning outside of those frames is being created. And I think that there's a, a uh, an opening for it, right? I think people are open to that because it's so obvious that what is the way things are currently happening um, cannot continue to happen, right? Uh, it's unsustainable. It's actively harmful in so many ways, Um you know, the, and 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 I think that there's a lot of different avenues of attack for that, right? I just think about as well. You know, we 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 did a whole episode on like you know some of the 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 thought of Lena Khan um, a while ago, and I'll, I'll say as well that you know Salome is in the posi- is in a position that Lena Khan held um, before going to the FTC, right? So. So, uh, you know, not saying you've got big shoes to fill here, but I'm saying no you're pressure. feeling those shoes. I'm saying you're, you're already <laughs> feeling those shoes, right? Uh, this is only, this is only the beginning of that, but I, I um, I think we, we all need to, to think more about what collective stewardship of this kind of, of, of the, this socially valuable information can really look at, right? Uh, or can look like, what that can look like, and how that can address the fundamental problems um, at, at their base that we've, you know, that we've really laid out here. I mean, I think to echo back to some of the points that both you, Jathan, and Meredith made earlier about kind of the importance of, of organizing, of workplace organizing, and also just this sort of I think what it what that is touching on more broadly, which is that I think we're really at a point of reawakening to ourselves as social, like this social and ourselves as political social beings. Um, you know, I think back to the famous Margaret Thatcher speech of, you know, there is no society, there are only individuals and families. Like I think we're 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 seeing people kind of reject that idea. And I think that that is core to people start starting to develop a practice and a um, political consciousness of themselves as um, in communities, in societies, in in sociality. And I mean, it seems kind of like woo-woo, I guess corny to say, but like that is the necessary precondition to our laws changing. You don't get a constitutional protection for unions without unionizing and without union organizers and without workplace organizing and without that kind of pressure that preceded that like legal shift. And I, I, you know, I'm also not prone to optimism, but I would say if I have optimism, it's that, you know, we do see sort of those, um, 
political reawakenings, the rejection of the idea that there is no such thing as society, there are only individuals and family, um, that to me hearken kind of like the necessary political and social preconditions to legal change, the legal changes that I certainly want to see and that I advocate for in my scholarship. Mm-hmm. Laws don't make power, power makes laws. And it seems like people are beginning yeah. to, uh, you know, I think I think there's a kind of like there's a common sensing of ideas of sociality and re- relationality and just kind of a rejection of grind culture, which really gives me a lot of optimism and makes me as sort of a, you know, like an elder millennial feel like a bit like I wish I was sort of, you know, grown up in the Gen Z culture minus a lot of the therapy talk. But like, you know, it seems like no one is sort of striving to like you know, rise and grind, right? Like people are really awake to organizing and a lot of ideas that took me years to kind of process and integrate into my analysis seem, you know, immediate to a lot of folks. Um, And I think there's, you know, there are a number of reasons for that, but it also seems like we're on the brink of being able to construct the type of like common sense in in tandem with the type of social pressure from organized workers and, and sort of organized movements that does move sort of, you know, step changes in, in, in law and in, you know, and in other infrastructures. And that, I guess that is a basis for my optimism um, that people seem to get it, even if there's like, you know, sticky narratives and like really formidable power asymmetries, you know, facing any, any step um, in the right direction. One thing I'm curious about, I don't think I've thought or read too much about is, you know, we've been also talking about how we want to reject outside external private entities from being able to shape us as opposed to doing it collectively and socially. But also, do you feel or think that in the process of um, discovering or seizing or constructing like collective infrastructure to make sense of how we're going to relate to each other or organize the world, that we may discover that there are things we will ourselves have to um, construct for one another um, without each other's input, I guess, even if it's in a democratic or collective um, setting, just for the sake of preserving a commons or preserving like collective stewardship or preserving democratic governance of um, either the infrastructure that's generating the data or the sensors that own it or the political processes that come out of the insights for the data, how it's interpreted? Are there things that are just like we will have to centrally or collectively uh, determine, but in a way that will be distinct from you know the corporate private centralization that goes on today? Like, will there inevitably be some cent- highly centralized public questions? Like, probably yes. Like, there are probably some, like, basic questions that do require some sort of central answers. Um, But it's very hard for me to come up with kind of, like, concrete examples of what those might be absent any kind of process of working out collectively what fairly resides at that level and what fairly resides at sort of other mezzanine levels or purely individual levels. I think the like procedural questions by which we determine those sorts of things, we don't occupy and we are not, I I personally don't feel like I'm in a position to just sort of like postulate about 
how, how we might settle those things collectively. I mean, there are, I think, probably like overriding questions of like existential concern that for me probably don't make sense for us to like give individuals vast discretionary authority over whether or not they opt into that system of knowing, like the guiding light for me, the like North star for me is always like climate crisis. Like, do I want to give like climate skeptics the opportunity to totally opt out of like, you know, CO2 measures or how much water they're using or how much energy they're using to like power their like Bitcoin mining farm. Like, no, (laughs) they're going to have to be legible to that system. (laughs) I do not want to like devolve, devolve individual, strong individual discretionary authority um, about whether or not you're like being rendered legible to that system. But the like meta level bases by which I say you do not get individual discretionary authority still is with an eye to like everyone's individual flourishing, by which I mean like I don't give you individual authority about whether or not you're going to like give climate skeptics the right to opt out on that because I still at the end of the day like think all lives, including the lives of climate skeptics, are important and like worthy of trying to preserve in the face of climate crisis. So like I have a normative standard by which I would sort of try to reason through where I devolve discretionary authority and where I don't, but I don't know. Ideally, we would have some sort of democratic procedurally just system by which we distinguish which things get devolved to individual discretionary authority and which things we sort of retain um, less discretionary authority over. I I think that is a nice way to start wrapping up is um, also, you know, I think big takeaways here are in terms of thinking about data, right? Like our our framings tend to be very like personal and individual, right? Like it's about personal data. It's about individual rights and control over that data. But something that we've been talking a lot about and just to really make it explicit is, you know, it really is instead taking a social framing of that, right? Like understanding the infrastructures that allow that data to be constructed and accessed and used, right? Understanding the conditions by which some people have discretionary authority over those, over that data and other people do not, right? Like I think, and and understanding the relations, right, between um, that, you know, we do live in a society, much to the chagrin of some people, uh, we do live in a society. <laughs> and uh, and I, I think that is something that is really powerful that I take away from um, both of your work, Salome and Meredith, and it was such a joy to collaborate with you on this nature piece about is really forefronting those concerns around sociality, around relationality, around infrastructure, around conditions, right? Like these are the kinds of framings that we have to take when we think about the political economies of data, of technology, of everything, right? Everything is about the conditions and the infrastructure that allows some things to happen and allow other things or disallow other things to happen. Like we said before, there's so much more to talk about here. We'll wrap it up and we'll end it there. But I think those are really good, big takeaways from here. So I do, I want to throw it over to both of you very, you know, quickly, uh, just for your, for your plugs, where, Salome, where can people find you, uh, and find your work? Probably the best place to go is Columbia's website. I'm now up there and you can find my, my bio and all of my work. I mean, I'm an academic academics. You just Google their names and their CVs pop up and I try to keep mine reasonably up to date. So, um, (laughs) personal website, Columbia website, um, is a pretty good place to find me and and what I'm up to and what I'm writing. 
Perfect. And I will say you just had a really fantastic paper come out in Big Data and Society with Jake Goldenfein and Lee McGuinn on mechanism design and platform capitalism. And so everybody should absolutely go read that paper. And Meredith, where can people find you and your work? Well, I would I would just want to double down on encouraging folks to you know read more deeply and um Salome's work because it's it's great and it, it's like tackling a bunch of issues that we talked about here and then more. Um, and you can find me on the AI Now website. I'm on Twitter. I try to keep my CV updated, but I'm probably not as assiduous as Salome. Um, and yeah, that's that's where you'll <laughs> find me. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Um, and we'll throw links to yeah your your uh, university websites and your Twitter uh, page uh, accounts profiles in the episode description. So yeah, everybody follow Salome and Meredith if you're not already. I mean, obviously you are. Come on, come on. Of course you are. Um, and read their work. So I, I want to thank you both again so much for for joining us for such a great discussion. Um, I want to thank all of our. Uh, listeners for, well, listening. Um, and you can find us as well at patreon.com slash this machine kills uh, for premium episodes every single week for deeper dives into these kinds of topics and discussions. <laughs> um, and so with that, uh, we will see you next time. Later. Later.
Kill.